This evening we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15 together. So let's take a moment to read our passage, and then we'll look at it. In verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to to gather them for battle. Their numbers are like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in it, in the books, according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The title of my message this evening is The Second Death. It is in contrast to what we had read last week concerning the first resurrection unto eternal life. John clearly states now that there is a second resurrection unto eternal death that he calls the second death. Have any of you ever had the uncomfortable experience of standing before a judge in a courtroom? You don't have to raise your hand. It's a very uncomfortable experience. I remember the occasion that I had to go to court and to stand before the judge, knowing that I was fully guilty of what I had been accused of, and solely relying upon his verdict and sentence to understand what my consequence was going to be. I was young at the time, and I remember being up the night before concerned and worried about it, even though the ramifications of what I did was not so severe that it was going to turn my life off course, but it was enough to get me in trouble with my parents, and that's all I really cared about at the moment. And I remember walking into the courthouse and then into the courtroom, and then finally, when my name was called, I remember sitting there waiting patiently with great anxiety, fear, and worry, and finally my name was called to go before the judge and to receive the sentence and the verdict in which he would render in my case. I think of the worry and angst that I experienced at that moment for such a minor issue, a minor offense. Let's bring it into a much larger context, our eternal life. Let's bring the judge into a much larger context, 
and that is God Himself. You would think that it would concern the average person to consider what it's going to entail to stand before a holy God. I recently discovered that 85% of Americans still believe that when they die, they are going to go to heaven. And why did I say it that way? Why did I use the word still? It's because in the same poll, they discovered that only 67% of Americans believe that heaven existed. Now think about that for a moment. The oxymoron is now formed. 85% believe they're going, but only 67% believe it exists. Okay, there's a miscommunication there somewhere. One of the questions I thought was funny, only 9% of those people polled believed that their neighbors were going to go to heaven. (laughs) So you wonder what kind of community they actually live in. But it is amazing to me to discover that still to this day, people are embracing the idea of an afterlife, yet they don't seem to have any care or concern about where that afterlife will be spent. They have believed for themselves and have justified and convinced themselves that somehow, some way, undoubtedly, they are going to end up in heaven, but certainly not their neighbor. Think about that for a moment. When I read this passage and I discover that not only will Satan himself be judged and cast down into the lake of fire once and for all, a defeated, a dethroned Satan. After 1,000 years of incarceration, he will be reckoned to the lake of fire for all eternity. Then I find that all who died apart from Christ will be resurrected to stand before this great white throne judgment. The Bible clearly teaches that this judgment is going to occur. And yet, it is obvious to me that really no one has any real concern for that day of judgment. If they did, I believe that they would be truly more proactive in discovering what would be required to be found innocent at that moment. That innocent can only be found in Christ, in Christ alone. It's a sobering thought to consider, especially when we read and we'll discover in a moment the magnitude of this event. But before we get to this great white throne judgment, Satan must be dealt with. The angel that fell from the beginning, the one who lured Eve into temptation, the one who wanted and desired to be worshipped as God and was cast down by God for his... uh, his transgression, the one that has caused havoc, the one who is currently the ruler of this world. We had seen him incarcerated, if you will look with me in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. 
I don't like that last sentence, but I believe it's necessary. God deems it necessary. Now we have come to the end of that thousand years, which are briefly described for us in verses 4 through 6 of the chapter 20. And now we come to the end, and we pick it up in verse 7. And when the thousand years had ended, this is the millennial reign of Christ, the physical reign of Christ on the earth from Jerusalem. And at the end of those thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out for the purpose, he tells us very clearly here, to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, an expression for the farthest reaches of the earth, the farthest places from the nation. Uh, Israel. Israel now is the epicenter. Israel is the center location. Christ is ruling from there. Some commentators and scholars believe that during the millennial kingdom, as children who are born during that thousand-year period of time, though growing up in an era of almost what we would consider perfection compared to what we have now, still are born with a sin nature and still in their hearts desire to rebel against God, which we'll discover in just a moment. Those who desire God were gravitate close to God. Those who desire to rebel gravitated away from God, some say. We don't know, but the point is, is that the writer here, John, is telling us that Satan goes about the earth for the strict purpose to deceive the nations. That deception is to draw them into the lie that they believe is true, that the rebellion against God is necessary. And we are introduced to Two here, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands of the seas. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Who is Magog? What is Magog? Who is Gog and Magog? Are the questions that we're probably all considering. We know that there is a Gog mentioned in 1 Chronicles 2, verse 4, a descendant, of course, Noah. But this is referring to two that are mentioned in Revelation, I'm sorry, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Two very fascinating chapters of the Bible that many have done some great work looking at, and there are many interpretive differences and opinions concerning these chapters. The crux of these two chapters, and I would encourage you to go home and read them for yourself, is that God depicts that He Himself draws Gog, who seems to be an individual, from the land of Magog, that's what the word means, land of Gog, down against his people Israel. He uses an expression saying that he hooks them in their jaw and brings them down with a group of other nations against his people to do war with them. The chapters even tell us that other nations will ask, what is the purpose of your coming against the nation of Israel? Are you here to take spoil and plunder and so forth? The nations will inquire, what is the purpose of this aggression towards the people of Israel? And Israel will defeat this coalition that comes and aggressively attacks them. In fact, it will be God who defends them. Now, many believe that this and that occasion are one and the same. I don't. I believe that what we are seeing here, this 
Gog and Magog are symbolic of the ones that we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That either come against Israel during the time of the battle of Armageddon, or an alternative theory is that they come against um, Israel prior to the battle of Armageddon, which is another popular view. If you do research and look at those nations mentioned, many of the names would not sound familiar to you, but some might. For example, who is Gog from the land of Magog? The closest that we have is Josephus, who tells us that this is representing the Scythians who are north of the Black Sea. That was the title of that region, that nation, at the time that that portion of the Bible was written. If we fast forward it today, that same region is the region of Russia today. If we look at the other nations in conjunction with the names that are given, some are more easily discerned than others, and we discover that the nations that come with Russia are nations that are currently surrounding Israel today that are all of the Muslim faith. Now, many believe that this will happen at the Battle of Armageddon, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Some believe it's going to happen earlier, that this might be the catalyst that will allow the Antichrist to build that peace treaty with Israel to sign in the last um, week of the promised uh, period of time from Daniel 9. Why do I bring this up? I think it's interesting that if Ezekiel 38 is referring to these areas, when they are looked in conjunction with Psalm 83 and Daniel 11, there are three gentlemen that you'd like to maybe look at yourself who have done excellent work in this field. Joel Rosenberg, Jimmy DeYoung, and Mark Hitchcock are three that I would recommend for you that have done excellent research in archaeology and um, geographical, topical studies of who these nations might be. We have never seen in history a group of nations such as these come against Israel, so it hasn't happened yet. They've confirmed that. But today, we must be aware of the fact that Russia is certainly placing themselves in the Middle East like never before. And if you take into consideration the passages from Psalm 83 and also Daniel 11, you will see the inclusion of Syria and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Well, if you haven't read the papers lately, the Russian president just met with the Syrian president this week. There's a great conflict going on over there. The main ally of of, uh, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 is Persia. Now, who is Persia? Well, up until 1932, Persia actually encompassed three nations. Pakistan, um, Afghanistan, and Iran. Now, we know that Russia has a, a li- uh, a allegiance with Iran like never before. They are their strong, one of their strongest allies in the Middle East. We see this relationship between Russia and the Middle East that is very, very similar to what we see in Ezekiel. And we cannot just arbitrarily dismiss it. We must be willing to look at it. There are other interpretations. There are other views. 
But I will offer you this, that when I was a Christian, when I became a Christian in the mid-1980s, Russia was so hated by the Middle East that no one thought the Ezekiel prophecy could ever come to fruition as such because they had just invaded Afghanistan and they were hated in the area. 30-some years later, it's completely different. Israel is a nation. They are now being surrounded by this group of nations mentioned in three different passages of Scripture. And they are being led by the inhabitants of what once was Magog, and now we see that that inhabitants is Russia. So it's interesting to me. But I do believe that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 are separate from the events here. And John is most likely, in my opinion, using these now, and I will agree to this, symbolically saying that just as before, Satan will once again bring these nations against God's people. Now again, it is Satan who brings these nations together against God's people. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's clearly God who does it. The only commonality between these two events is the fact that fire is used to destroy them in both cases. But that's a common expression of God's judgment in the Bible. So it shouldn't surprise us that there is some similarities here. But what we see happening and what we need to obtain for our study tonight is the fact that at this point in time, after the thousand years, Satan is released. People then go after him, are deceived once again. The nations are deceived from the four corners of the earth. They come down against God's people and they march up over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints the beloved city, which I believe is Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven. There is no battle, there is no fight, and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If you read the Ezekiel account, you will discover that after the warfare, the God's people use for fuel the residual effects of that war, the weapons and so forth. There's more to the story in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So again, looking at them literally, we see that they are very possibly two different occasions and not one and the same. Now, some believe that it'll happen near the beginning of the tribulation. Others believe that this is part of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. That can be well debated. But both of those positions are prior to the Millennial Kingdom where this one is after the Millennial Kingdom. Just something for you to consider and to, to look at. Plus also, again, it is interesting to me that we have such parallel today. When we just look at the news and we see the renewed aggression of, this, of Russia under Vladimir Putin. It, it, it's astonishing to me. It's absolutely astonishing to me. And when you see him aligning himself with the Middle East, it, it's, it's, it's amazing to see that the Bible had possibly stated that that's exactly what's going to happen. Please consider it in your prophetic studies as a possibility. But I also want you to know the end to the devil 
which is torment forever and ever. There is no ambiguity that the torment that the devil will suffer along with the false prophet and all who are thrown into the lake of fire is a torment of everlasting and everlasting. As one wrote, John Wolverd, he said, there would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost here mentioned both day and night and the expression forever and ever. Literally, to the ages of ages. There is no doubt that the suffering, the torment that individuals will experience in the second death is a torment forever and ever and ever. That is a reality that the Bible depicts for us very clearly. I was surprised to discover the renewed interest in what's called the annihilation theology that pretty much at the end of it all, apart from Christ, there will simply be an annihilation of one. That there will be no everlasting torment. But that's exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. That there will not be an annihilation. In fact, it was only up until just recently, well, that's not true, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses held to an annihilation understanding of eternity. That we would just fall asleep and that would be it. But there is an everlasting presence, even an everlasting presence in eternal life with God in heaven, new heaven, new earth, or in an eternity in hell. This are the two realities that the Bible clearly tells us, that it will be an everlasting judgment. But let us notice that the deception that was willing to be embraced by those on the earth once again shows us the depth of the depravity of man's heart. Even though the environment would be considered almost perfect compared to what we have now, you had a restrained Satan, you had a physical Christ reigning, you had law and justice that was uncorrupted, and yet the surrounding, the environment in and of itself was not enough to change people's hearts. They still, at the end of the thousand years, those who were born during that period of time, still born in that sin nature rebelled against God. Isn't that hard to believe? Well, it actually shouldn't be. The Bible's been telling us that from the beginning. It didn't matter what utopia that the sinful man was surrounded by, it was our own fallen nature that corrupted us from within, regardless of what our environment has to offer. There should be no ambiguity in that. One said this powerfully demonstrates that the problem is within us, not only in our environment. Today, many people believe that if we just change the environment of people, we will get better people. That's not necessarily the truth, is it? In fact, you can see how those ideas have permeated parenting. Those ideas have permeated Uh, social existence. That idea permeates the issue of social justice. That if we just give a perfect environment, people will turn out perfect, better, less willing to sin and to rebel. Is that true? No, not at all. And people are learning that today. 
Think of the generations that have come through the, United, the history of the United States of America alone. Think of the generation that experienced for themselves firsthand the Great Depression in the 20s. And how they valued money like no one else, right? And they saved, they worked hard, they lived within their means, they provided well for their family, they worked two and three jobs, whatever was necessary. They weren't looking to obtain a certain level of social standing in their living, in their materialism. They just wanted to be able to survive and to provide adequately for their family. Children of that learned the value of hard work and a strong work ethic was created. It's amazing that the greatest generation of our nation's history has always been those that went to fight for our country's sake in World War II. All products of the Great Depression. 20, 30-year-old people. When things began to change is when we started doing everything for our children, right? And we began to require less and less and less and less and less from them. And now more recently, when our children are getting into great difficulties because of mistakes they've made, instead of letting them work through the consequences of those mistakes themselves, parents are swooping in and they are taking those consequences away. They are sparing their child from those consequences and no one's learning. And they go back and they repeat the same mistakes over and over again. A perfect environment is not going to create a perfect person. The great commentator host said, it will be proven once more that man, whatever his advantages and environment, apart from the grace of God and the new birth, remains at heart only evil and at enmity with God. Another one, Chuck Swindoll says, make it no mistake, the human heart remains deceitful and desperately wicked. And Robert Mounts, he stated this, A thousand years of confinement does not alter Satan's plans, nor does a thousand years of freedom from the influence of wickedness change man's basic tendency to rebel against his Creator. Neither do the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time and the absence of wicked influence. What an amazing thing to consider. that there will be rebellion against God even after a time that we may look at and think, well, that's going to be perfect compared to what we have now. In actuality, it won't be truly perfect until the new heavens and the new earth. But it is certainly something to consider. As one wrote, and I'd like to uh, read this in this closing of this section, the one sense the millennial kingdom will sum up all that God has said about the heart of man during the various periods of history. It will be a reign of law, and yet law will not change man's sinful heart. Man will still revolt against God. The millennium will be a period of peace and perfection of environment, a time when disobedience will be judged swiftly and with justice, and yet in the end the subjects of the king will follow Satan and rebel against the Lord. A perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. And now God will wrap up that which remains. Look at with me in verse 11. 
as we move from that, we now deal with all of those who remain. And then I saw a great white throne. It is interesting that it it is completely noticeable in the original language that the focal point of John's attention is this great white throne and him who is seated on it. Who is seated on this great white throne at this time? Well, it's none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has promised us that he would be on his glorious throne in the last days. Matthew 19, 28 states, Jesus then said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me and will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. John five twenty-two and 23, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honored the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And one I included in this that I'd like to include is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And as he is seated on his throne from the presence of the earth, and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them, and then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Total equality at this point of judgment. It didn't matter who they were that were standing before the great judge, Christ himself, on the great white throne. It didn't matter if they were great at one time here on this earth or small at one time. The standing before the throne and the books were open and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. It is interesting that throughout the Bible, books are mentioned. There are many books mentioned throughout the Bible. These books are assembled apparently at this, this moment, and it is by these books that all will be judged. The Bible talks about the book of life from the beginning of the Bible and the book of Exodus all the way till the end, which we know is one of the books as we read it clearly here. But there are other books assembled, which we will find out and discover in a moment, that written in them are all the things that these individuals had done. Now, these are all the people who have died apart from Jesus Christ from the beginning of time till the end. These are all the people now that are experiencing this resurrection, a body and soul convergence once again to stand before God himself and to be judged. We know that Jesus talked about a book of idle words in Matthew that will be judged. Every idle word that comes from us will be judged, these individuals. And then we also hear these words in John 12, 47 through 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, 
I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That is in his first coming. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So everything that these individuals had done, said, and thought had been recorded. And it will be determined by these things and their absence from the book of life, which we'll talk about in a moment, that will seal their fate. It will be absolutely apparent that no righteousness has been able to be obtained in and through their own endeavors in and through their own abilities that will allow them to stand and to enter into the kingdom of God. None whatsoever. It will be grossly apparent. And their names being absent in the book of life, a book again mentioned from the very beginning that Exodus talks about, that others talk about, that God has compiled, that includes every name that from the foundations of the world had been set apart for the purpose of salvation. And in this book, you can have the guarantee that you will not be blotted out. And these individuals, who are obviously not in Christ, who stand now before God in their own righteousness, will be convicted on the basis of all that they've done, said, and thought. Compared to the Ten Commandments alone, all are guilty, correct? In fact, no one has kept all Ten Commandments except Jesus himself. And God will then determine their guilt once and for all. And they will be set apart for all eternity based upon that guilt. Let me read some passages for you. I'm going to give you the scripture verses and you can write them down for yourself and look for these passages. But for our time's sake this evening, let me just read them uh, quickly for you. There are several, so please be patient and hang in there with me. Exodus 32, 31 through 33. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, this is Moses pleading with God, but if not, he says, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The psalmist picks that theme up when he says in Psalm 69, 26 through 28, for they persecuted him who you have struck down And they have recounted the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And Daniel echoes this same thought. In Daniel 12, 1 through 4. At that time shall rise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
some to everlasting contempt. Here is an Old Testament depiction of the two resurrections. Then those who are wise and shall shine like the brightest of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we read of this book again. Then those who feared the Lord and spoke with one another, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who had feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as men are spared his own son who serve him. And once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And then in Luke's gospel, this theme continues. In Luke 10, 19 and 20, as we move into the New Testament, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hebrews 12, 24 through, I'm sorry, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There is that word inscribed in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And as we move into Revelation, Revelation 13, 7 and 8, we find this again. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints to conquer them and to have authority was given over them, every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship everyone whose name has not been written in the book, I'm sorry, before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17.8, the book appears again. Then the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And all the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And into Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, Speaking of the new heaven and the new earth, he says, but nothing unclean will ever enter in nor anyone who does not does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 5, I'm sorry, 3, 5 through 6, the promise is given to the church. And the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does this mean? It is paralleled to a register of a city or of a, of a village. Every city in Israel kept a register. Every person who was born was entered into that register based upon their genealogy and the time in which they were born. And of course, when those people died, they were removed from that registry to always give that city and town an understanding of their 
population and who still resides within the city. God has this book that from the foundations of the world had been written. And our names who are in Christ were written in that book from the very beginning. And it's our name in that book that allows us to be with Christ. That we were written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. Some believe that all the world was written in this book and then as individuals rejected Jesus Christ, their names were blotted out and they went to their death. Others believe that it was only those set apart for the purposes of Christ. Either way, either way, from the foundations of the world, those who are going to be in Christ were written in that book. They came to Christ. We are secure in Christ and therefore our names will never be blotted out of that book. Why? Because we're not going to die, right? Even if I die physically, I'm still going to live forever, eternally. Am I not? Do I not have everlasting life? But this book of life is brought to this particular judgment. And those names that are not found written in it then determines that they are apart from Christ and therefore they are guilty of unrighteousness before a holy God. Because it's only the righteousness of Christ that allows us the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? It's only Him who allows us that. Nothing we do. We cannot earn our own way into heaven. We cannot earn our own way into the kingdom of God. It's only through Christ that that can be obtained. The standard is perfection. The Bible clearly says that if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. You're guilty of them all. These people at this moment before the great white throne, these unbelievers, will stand before their judge, who is Christ himself, the one who gave himself for the atonement of sin, for the redemption of mankind, for the reconciliation of all people. It is him that they stand before and they will stand there in their righteousness, whatever is indicated in the book, only to discover that whatever righteousness they think they have is completely and utterly negated by their sin. The Bible says that our righteousness before God is like filthy rags. In our terms, used toilet paper. We cannot stand in and of ourselves before God. These individuals will try and they will not survive. And look what happens to them. Verse 12. I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, the books we just talked about. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life that we've talked about. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Listen to what it says. According to what they have done. Their guilt solely upon themselves. And it's all who had died. The sea gave up its dead. 
all that were killed in the flood, all that had been buried at sea, the sea gave up its dead, meaning they rose again, body, soul brought together in unity to stand before the Father. I'm sorry, before the Son. Who were in it, death, that represents the body. Hades, which represents the soul, gave up its dead. Who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what he says again? According to what they have done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is a sobering thought in and of itself. There was a little devotional once written called By the Book. I'd like to read it for you. At the judgment, the books will be opened. These books contain the recorded deeds of every everyone of their good and of their evil. Everyone's life will be reviewed and evaluated. No one is saved by deeds, but deeds are seen clear as evidence of a person's actual relationship with God or not. Jesus will look at how they have handled the gifts and opportunities and responsibilities. God's glorious gift of salvation does not free us from our requirements of being faithful to obedience and service. Each one of us must serve Christ in the best way we know and leave each day according to the books that will be open. What are they saying? Many will profess to be Christians. But James made the argument that our Christian faith must be evident not in what we necessarily simply proclaim, but how we live our lives. This devotional is not saying that we will stand before God and somehow, some way, our deeds will incur our righteousness. But it will be apparent that these people, apart from Christ, had not the deeds at all to even warrant any type of righteousness before God, and therefore they were separated from God for all eternity. Today we live in an atmosphere and a culture that so many proclaim to be Christians. And yet we ask the questions, how many actually are? Can we determine by the life and the fruit in which they supposedly display or don't display if they are truly in the faith or not. Because look at what he says here. Whatever is in death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. When a person apart from Christ dies today, they go to Hades and they wait this judgment. They will then be placed into the lake of fire for all eternity. The lake of fire is a word that is in the Greek called Gehenna. It was used for a particular place outside of the city of Jerusalem. In the valley of Hymen, which was just outside the wall of Jerusalem at that time, there was an everlasting burning pile of garbage. It was horrific. Everything was disposed of there. Everything. Waste, human waste, human remains, everything was disposed at this place called Gehenna. It is this parallel that Jesus draws. It is this illustration that Jesus builds upon to describe the everlasting burning flames 
of this lake of fire, which individuals will be in for all eternity. Gehenna was well known there in Jerusalem. It was a place where the Romans would fill often with the number of people that they slayed simply because they would not obey or subject themselves to the deity of Rome. And now Jesus is saying for all eternity, that place is now amplified and expanded upon for all eternity. John Wolverd wrote, The statement of death and Hades gave up the dead means that the physical bodies of the unsaved will be joined with their spirit, which has been in Hades. The mention of the sea giving up its dead makes it clear that regardless of how far the body has disintegrated, it will nevertheless be resurrected for this judgment. I want to leave you with these words this evening for you to consider. This is from Chuck Swindoll. In the light of Calvary, no lost sinner can condemn God for casting him or her into hell. God has provided a way of escape, patiently waiting for sinners to repent. He will not lower his standards or alter his requirements. He has ordained that faith in his Son is the only way of salvation. The white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne, there will be no judge. I'm sorry, there will be a judge, but no jury. A prosecution, but no defense. A sentence, but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself or accuse God of unrighteousness. What an awesome scene it will be. Before God can usher in his new heaven and new earth, he must finally deal with sin once and for all. And this he will do at the great white throne. And as we close, I leave you with the words of Jesus himself. John 5, 24. In all that we have read, in all that we have considered this evening, listen to these words of Jesus and let them penetrate your heart this evening. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life.